Well, today I want to kind of follow up on what we talked about last week. And if I were to summarize sort of what I talked about last week, basically it's this. We all have a script that we've written for our life. Anybody uh, imagined at some point in your life what your life was going to be like? Anybody do that? From the time you're little, they try to get you to do that, right? Tell me what you want to be when you grow up, okay? And every, every kid, every, of course, when I was growing up, boys wanted to be firemen or policemen or, you know, uh, Texas, I'm not, we wanted to be gun owners. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but but uh, it was, uh, you know, it, it's amazing how we develop in our minds this script of what we think our life is going to be like. And we all do that, and we should. I think it's part of what we call a vision. A young men have vision. Uh, and it's, it's necessary for young people to have vision because what gets you up off your blessed assurance to do something to prepare for your life. But how many of you are long enough, or have been down the road long enough to know that the script you have written never turns out exactly like you imagined it? Anybody? Yeah, I guarantee you. If you're honest, uh, you know that uh, life has all sorts of turns and twists and all sorts of things that you could not have even imagined. Here's the good news is overarching the script that we write is this script that God has written. We call it script Sure, get it, get it, good, thank you, I'm going to say get it, you say got it, I'll say good, get it, good, we used to do that all the time in this church and I quit doing it a few years ago, maybe I can bring that back, so get it, good, all right, um, maybe we won't, <laughs> but um, anyway, um, here's, here's the cool thing, God has a plan and a purpose, and while our life is in that because we're in Christ, and if you're in Christ, it's there. In fact, it's even there somewhat even if your life is not. God's taken people who are not believers and used them in absolutely unique ways. He really has because God is a sovereign and provident God. And God has a history. Uh, God has a history that he is fulfilling and, and the one thing we can rest assured of is that while sometimes it doesn't look like it's turning out good, we live with this absolute assurance that God, because he's God, causes, doesn't allow, he causes everything, everything to work for good. It says everything is good. He causes it all to work for good to everyone who loves him and has been called according to his purpose. Now, here's the problem. When you start living your purpose and you try to separate from God, you're going to find yourself deeply frustrated because it doesn't turn out exactly like you planned, but God knows your life. The Bible says the steps of a righteous man are determined by the Lord. Okay, did you get that? They are determined by the Lord. Well, I'm not a righteous man. Well, that's not about you personally. That's about your faith in Christ. We're not personally righteousness. Righteousness is something we receive in Christ. Now, out of that righteousness, we want to live rightly, correctly. But the reality is we have this assurance in our life every day that uh, God's will will be done. Now, it doesn't mean that, uh, that it's going to be easy. Because you can mark my word, it will not be easy. It will not be easy. 
And uh, I, I tell people all the time, God is good. But unfortunately, in the West, we spell good, E-A-S-Y. And sometimes it's not easy. In fact, what this community has been over for the, through over the last month or so has not been easy. I mean, we've dealt with fires. We've dealt with just uh, the, the tragedy that we dealt with about a week and a half ago. And it's not easy. But in the midst of that, God is still good. God is still good. Now, when this thing begins to twist and turn, because it does at times, doesn't it? I mean, we live in this world, and when twists and turns come, we, we, our stories get all messed up, okay? And sometimes our stories are messed up because of the choices we've made. Sometimes they're messed up because of the choices other people make. But our stories get all messed up, but God doesn't. Sometimes it appears that way because we've developed certain ideas and opinions about God that uh, are true, but even in their truth, they're challenged. For instance, I share with you last week, when you're little, if you grew up in the church, you grew up with this idea that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? I mean, and so we, we believe Jesus leaves us, loves us, and then uh, a week ago Thursday happens and it challenges that belief, doesn't it? It really does. But here's what I know. If you don't hang on to some core beliefs in your life, you are going to become a person that is uh, 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 lacking a deep sense of peace in your soul. And you're going to end up a person who's living with a sense of hopelessness in your life. And it's when we come to a place where we say, God, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. The Old Testament, there's a passage where one of the prophets is describing all of the adversity that was going to come to God's people because of their disobedience. And he's describing all of the difficulty that they're experiencing. The writer stops in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. He sort of pauses and he says, God is good. He's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who trust in him. I encourage you to read Nahum chapter 1, uh, really the whole book of Nahum. And he's describing all of this adversity. He's going to come and as he's describing it, he probably like us begins to question, uh, is God really good? But he makes a declaration and here's the de declaration. God is good. Because he's good, and I believe he's good, he is a stronghold. He's an anchor in the day of trouble. And he knows, he knows those who trust in him. But when adversity comes into our life, it creates all sorts of emotions in us. It creates confusion. Uh, anybody ever seen things going on in our world and just been confused? I mean, it's just confusing, isn't it? Anybody ever seen what's going on in our world and your heart's filled with, not just confused, filled with anger? You felt a sense of anger? Yeah. We've felt those things. Well, one of the prominent emotions that we feel when these kinds of things happen is this thing called fear. Fear enters into our heart and 
It's not a healthy kind of fear. We're going to talk about the difference in those two in a moment. But the reality is that God does not intend for you and I to live in a spirit of fear. In fact, Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy, uh, in, in his first letter to Timothy, he, wrote, he said, God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a, a, a spirit of power and of love and a spirit of control. I memorized that in a different version. It says, for God has not given us a, a, a spirit of fear, but of power and wisdom and of a sound mind. A sound mind. And we don't have to live by fear. We, we as of all people, have the privilege of rising above the fears of our life and we have the ability to live our lives in, in faith in a God we should fear in the right way, but we live with this incredible confidence because we don't live on our fears. We live on the basis of faith. Fear is common in the Bible. In fact, it's very prominent in the scriptures. I mean, when you read through the Bible, you understand that fear is everywhere. I mean, every, nearly every page of the Bible mentions the concept of fear. In fact, probably one of the first emotions of talking, of, talking about in the Bible was one of fear. Remember Adam? He sinned against God, and, and he went and made some clothes. Remember, and he hides because that's what fear does. Is fear causes us to hide is what it does. And so Adam's off hiding, and the Bible says God's looking for Adam. I always thought that was funny, as if God was going, where is he? Where did he go? Okay. Now, God wasn't looking for Adam because he didn't know where Adam was. He was looking for Adam because Adam didn't know where God was. And so when he finds him, he says, Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam's response was, because I was naked and I was afraid. Afraid. All through the Bible, you'll find the subject of fear. Now, here's what I know about fear. We all have fears. Everybody here has fears. Anybody here not have any fears? None at all. If you don't have any fears this morning, you need to check your pulse. Okay? Because we all have them. We have uh, fears of relational fears. We have financial fears. We have uh, spiritual fears. We have all sorts of fears in our life, and they're there. We have security fears. We have all sorts of things in our life. Often our lives are filled with fear, and we all have fears. Now, the truth is, is that there are good fears and there are bad fears. Do you know there are good fears? In fact, uh, we'll see this in a moment that the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. We understand that correctly, but that's a positive fear. There are negative fears. Let me, let me tell you the difference. Let me give you some of the differences between good and bad fear. Good fear produces faith. Bad fear paralyzes faith. You're going to see that in the stories we're going to look at this morning. Good fear produces faith, or it can produce faith. Bad fear paralyzes faith. Good fear is circumstantial. Bad fear is perpetual. In other words, you're going to have moments of fear in your life. Have you ever been driving down the road and uh, 
you start to change lanes and you're just a little lazy, you don't check the mirror and all of a sudden there's a car about this close to you and he's laying on the horn and you, he, you know, they lay on that horn. Do, do you feel any fear in that moment? Sure you do. Now you drive smarter for at least the next 15 minutes, right? <laughs> okay, and maybe for a couple of days you check your mirror better, you do things like that. But that's, uh, that's circumstantial. You don't get in the car every day of your life going, oh, no, somebody's going to hit me. If you drive like that, I don't want to be around you, okay? <laughs> Perpetual is where you can't let it go. And some of you this morning have these perpetual fears in your life that are robbing you of some amazing things that God wants to do in your life, relational things, financial issues, Spiritual issues, faith issues, because you live in this perpetual state of fear. Parental issues. Let me give you another one. Good fear is instructive. Bad fear is confusing and fatalistic. Fatalistic. When you have a good kind of fear, it's instructive. In fact, someone shared with me, let me see if I can find it, put it at the end of the deal. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. In other words, there's a positive kind. Because what it does is it produces in me a right understanding of what's not good for my life, for my life. Good fear is instructive. You're going to see some of that in the stories we're going to look at this morning. Bad fear is confusing and fatalistic. People who have bad fear are always confused and they're always Eeyore. Now, I know you think Eeyore is cute, but he's really pessimistic, isn't he? And fatalistic. I go to some churches and really they ought to be singing in their worship services you know, um, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. <laughs> and it's fatalistic. Let me give you another. Good fear is empowering. You have good fear, it empowers you. Bad fear is enslaving. Some of you are enslaved to your fears right now. Good fear honors God's laws. Good fear honors God's laws. Bad fear avoids God's laws. Good fear produces wisdom. Bad fear produces carelessness. See, we all have fears. Every one of us does. Second thing, other people will always reinforce your fears. Have you been around people? Have you, have you noticed the world will constantly reinforce negative fears? I mean, uh, one of the primary sources of that, you know what it is? The media. You guys know what I'm talking about? I mean, it's, I mean, the media, not all media, Doug, I know. <laughs> we have media people in the room. But have you noticed how they just, man, they just magnify the negative? And they, they sort of reinforce the fears that you feel. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and there's this constant reinforcement that you feel. Uh, uh, it could be other things. Uh, your, your, your family can reinforce your fears. Parents, uh, Satan will reinforce them. I mean, Satan 
doesn't have any faith, so he just uses fear. Friends, pastors, you know, I, 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 as I thought about this week, I thought, I don't want to scare you into a right relationship with God. I want to lead you into an understanding of God's grace. But boy, I'd say sometimes if we're not careful, we can say, boy, if you don't do this, this. Now, there may be truth in that, but figure out how to do that and not just scare the living daylights out of people. By the way, what are living daylights? Politicians, right? Politicians use fear. Well, you vote for him, you're going to get this. And then you vote for the other guy and you get the, exactly what he said. They're, they're always using fear. See, the people you put around your life are either going to build your faith or they're going to play off of your fears. And the fear that man uses as a method of intimidation and control, fear and intimidation are one of the most used weapons that exists in our world. But we got to understand something about fear versus faith, because it really boils down to that. It boils down to fear versus faith. I love the way Jimmy Evans wrote it. He said, negative fear is a prophet spirit from hell that gives us a negative view of the future that causes us to make fear-based decisions that God will not honor. Listen to that again. I want you to get this. This is so important. Negative fear is a prophet spirit from hell that gives us a negative view of the future and causes us to make fear-based decisions that God will not honor. God does not honor fear-based decisions. Listen to the opposite. Faith is a prophetic spirit from God that gives us a positive view of the future that helps us in faith make decisions that God will honor. Think about this. The Bible says without faith, it is what? It's what? Impossible. It's impossible to what? Please God. You see, when I make decisions out of fear, I don't know about you, they're seldom very, very, very good. And so I wanna make decisions based on faith. Now, a couple of things you want to do, since we understand others will reinforce them, surround yourself with people who will affirm your faith and help you attack your fears. Don't, uh, don't surround yourself with people all the time that are constantly using fear and undermining faith. Surround yourself with people who will build your faith. Now, what do I do with negative fear? Well, you recognize this, only God, only God can legitimately remove negative fear. Only God can do that. And it's interesting, we learn how he does it over in the book of Mark. So if you have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, you'll get some of it on your outline. You're not gonna get all that we're gonna look at this morning. If you have a Bible, we're gonna answer the question, how does Jesus free us from fear? 
Mark chapter 4 and 5 are interesting because most believe the primary purpose of this writing and Mark's writing was to help us understand the reestablishment of the kingdom of God and what would happen when the kingdom of God fully comes one day. Okay, so if you understand that about Mark, in fact, if you have your Bible and, and you look over in Mark chapter 1, you're going to discover that uh, after John baptizes Jesus, he's led out in the wilderness and, and there he's tempted. And, and by the way, when Satan comes to Jesus at his weakest point, he uses fear to try to get him off track is what he does, but it doesn't work. Now, the Bible says that after the temptation of Jesus, there's this little, little short passage of Scripture, actually two verses in here that tell us what the purpose of John or Mark's gospel is or Mark's writings are. And here's what it says. Now, after John was arrested, it kind of passes through some of the stuff you lead, learn more in Matthew and in Luke, but in Mark, he kind of bypasses a lot of the details of those early times in Jesus' life. And he says, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the gospel of God. In other words, Jesus was proclaiming the good news. They needed good news, just like we need good news today. And then here's what it says. In saying this, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So when you understand the way this is written, you understand that Mark was sort of written to show the methods that God would use to reestablish his kingdom in the hearts of people in the world. And then he does something real interesting. He shows us the things that he's going to remove from the world when the kingdom of God comes is what he does. Now, he does this in an interesting way. If you look at Mark chapter 4 and Mark chapter 5, what he does in Mark chapter 4 is he tells these parables. These parables, and they're all, most of them are pretty much agricultural parables, and he's talking about how God is going to establish the kingdom of the world, and then how God is going to grow the kingdom in the world. That's what he's going to do. And so in chapter 4, he tells these four parables. He tells uh, the parable of the sower. Uh, you remember the sower and the seed. And then he pauses in there to say, look, unless you're a part of the kingdom, you're not going to really understand these parables because these are kingdom parables. They're not worldly parables. And so you just won't get it. And then he goes on, takes his disciples, explains to them the meaning of the parable of the sower is what he does. And then he talks about uh, the parable of a lamp that is under a basket. What he's saying is a lamp under a basket is a worthless lamp. And so what do you do with a lamp? You don't put it under a bushel or a basket. You put it on the hill where everybody can see and benefit from the light. And so he says, look, the, the, the purpose, the kingdom is multiplied when God's people are bringing light into the world. He says, you're the light of the world. And so he's building, he's establishing, and he's building the kingdom of God in the world. And then he does the parable of the, of, of the seed that grows and then he does the parable of the mustard seed, which is a very small seed, real tiny seed. In fact, it's hard for you to even see it with a naked eye, but eventually it, it sprouts and it grows and it bears, it grows a tree or a large bush and, and it produces fruit is what it does. And he says the same thing. It's just going to start small, but God's going to grow it. Then in the last part of chapter 4, he does two things. He, he, he actually shares four miracles, or we read about four miracles in chapter 4 and in chapter 5. 
Here's what's interesting. Those four miracles have to do with things that the kingdom of God will confront on this world and the four things that he's going to eliminate when the kingdom of God fully comes. And here's what it is. First thing is he says he's going to eliminate uh, uh, storms. In other words, when the kingdom comes, we're not going to have to worry about earthquakes. Everybody okay with that? Okay. No tsunamis or, 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 or tornadoes or any of those kinds of things. He, he basically, he, he, he shows how the kingdom of God will confront those things. And in the kingdom that is to come, we're not going to have to worry about that stuff. Amen? Then he says something else. He says, there's a, we're not going to have to worry about uh, demonic spirits. They are here. He heals a little boy who had a demon spirit or a man. Then uh, the third miracle is quite interesting because the third and fourth, because in the third one, uh, we'll explain it a little bit more as I go, but he, he's asked to come to a man named Jairus' home because his daughter was extremely sick and Jesus agrees to go and on his way, you remember he's on his way to heal the little girl and, uh, and, and a lady stops him. And he heals her in his conversation. The time between then and the time the lady's healed, the girl dies. And we'll read in a minute about what it does. But you look at the four things the kingdom of God will eliminate. Storms. Demons. Sickness. And death. You know, those things produce a lot of fear in our world, don't they? In fact, in every one of these texts of Scripture, the concept of fear is either clearly spoken of or it's implied. Now, when you look at the first two, it's interesting because in the first two, it's not Jesus eliminating fear. To some degree, he's bringing a concept of fear, but it's a healthy fear. It's a healthy fear. Let's look at them together. In the first one, he, he basically, he brings, he, he frees us from fear by bringing us a, a healthy understanding of, fa of, of fear. He, he frees us from fear by the fear that he brings into his life. Um, here's the fear. In, in the first one, in the last part of chapter 4, uh, it, it's been a busy time for Jesus. He's healed a lot of people. He's been teaching. They're tired. They get in the boat in the evening to go to the other side to get away from the crowds that are following. And they get in the boat and they're out there and disciples are rowing to get across the boat late at night. And all of a sudden the storm comes up, doesn't it? Remember that? And, and, and it gets pretty bad. And the disciples are panicking and probably trying to get water out of the boat. I'm sure they didn't have any tin cans back then maybe a bucket or whatever, but the, the storm has gotten enough that the, the, the waves are literally getting into the boat is what they're doing. And they're fearful that the boat is going to sink. Rightfully so. These are fishermen. They know. Now, it's a fisherman's boat, so I don't know how tall the waves were, but in a fisherman's boat, the sides are real low like this so you can get the nets over. And there's fear in them. Guess what Jesus is doing? He's resting is what he's doing. And the Bible says that uh, in this passage of Scripture that uh, 
Basically, Jesus wakes up and he rebukes the wind. I'm going to talk about that verse in just a moment. What you're going to see in this passage of scripture, though, is that what God does in these cases, he brings to them a healthy kind of fear because the reality is they're going to realize something about Jesus that absolutely blows their mind. And here's why this matters. Because the Bible says very clearly in the, in the scripture that, that, uh, that the, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and the knowledge of the Holy One is, is, is insight. In other words, we have to have some healthy understanding. There's a healthy kind of fear. It's called respect. It's called reverence. In fact, uh, Colin Smith, who's a Scottish preacher that I enjoy listening to a lot, actually said it this way. The natural response of sinful human beings, fear is the natural response of sinful human beings in the presence of a holy God. Fear is the natural response of sinful human beings in the presence of a holy God. Now, you, you guys will understand this. I, I think you will. Uh, how many of you have ever, were ever called to the office growing up? Thank you for you honest people, okay? Okay? And, uh, you know, you're sitting in class, you're doing your own thing, and all of a sudden, Jim Ryan, come to the office. We didn't have one of those. They came to the door and said, Jim, come with us. The principal wants to see you. Did your blood pressure go up? I remember those moments in my life. I remember I was in church training one night. When I was growing up, we had Sunday school at 945, worship at 11. We came back at five in the afternoon for what we called church training, and then we had worship service again that night. And I was just sick of church. Anybody get sick of church? Don't raise your hand right now. Okay. And so I was just messing around in, in church training. I was interrupting everybody. And I remember the teacher did everything she could to get me to calm down, and finally she said, Jimmy... Just go to the pastor's office. Now, that'd be scary for anybody, but it was really scary for me because guess who the pastor is? He's my daddy. And I'll never forget, I walked in, and the teacher walked in with me and said, uh, Brother Bill, Texas, they called you brother, not pastor. Brother Bill, Jimmy doesn't want to pay attention. He's disrupting the class tonight. And so I, I thought maybe you might want to deal with this. And my dad was studying, and my, here's the way my dad studied. He would always, he would read like this, and then he'd look like this. <laughs> and I remember he's doing this. And I thought, man, he's just going to beat me or something, you know. That would be the normal response, he said. And so he said, Jimmy, just have a seat in that chair right there. And for at, at least eight hours, it felt that way. I remember he would be studying, and he'd look up like this, and he'd do this. And you look up like this, and I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, man, when's it going to come? And I remember he did this, and you always knew he was ready to have a conversation because he'd do this if he looked up and then he did this. <laughs> Put his glasses up, and I thought, this is it. I never forget he looked at me and he said, you don't want to go to church anymore, do you? I mean, do you be honest or not? 
is that a question that we, and I said, uh, I didn't say anything. He said, okay, let me state the question differently. Jimmy, if you don't want to go to church anymore, in my mind, I'm thinking Sunday night Disney. <laughs> the only time Disney was on was it Sunday night. And my dad preached way too long for us to see it. Okay. I mean, I didn't see the Wizard of Oz until I was 28. And it was in color by then, which is cool. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he said, you don't have to go to church. You don't want to. I thought, really? <laughs> he put his head down like this. He's reading again. And then he looked up in a minute. But you don't have to live in my house either. I was 13 years old. <laughs> and you know what? He meant what he said. And I figured church was a small price to pay for mom's cooking. <laughs> See, I understand that so, from a purely human perspective. Can you imagine that from a us and God perspective? Because here's the deal. If I walked into any of your offices, when I walked into my dad's office, I was walking into the office of a sinful man. You see, when you go into the presence of God, you're walking into holiness, which is so, so in contrast to who we are. It produces in us this concept of fear. I think we need, let, let me explain it to you in this. Jesus is kind of resting, and he's obviously asleep because it says he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea. Can you imagine? You ever talk... You know, you ever talk to your car? You crazy car. Okay, he's talking to the ocean. He said to the sea, listen to this, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You've just seen these miracles. Don't you have any faith? Now, you would think at this moment, that they would start thinking, well, maybe we shouldn't have any fear. But listen to what it says. The text is real interesting because what it says is, and it says then they were filled with greater fear and said to one another, who then is this? That even the wind and the waves, the sea obey his voice. You know what they realized at that moment? This guy is not normal. <laughs> and it produced in them a fear that drew them to him. A fear that drew them to him. Now, in the next miracle, it's really interesting because when you look at the next miracle that's in this text of Scripture, you really sort of have the opposite because in the second miracle... They get through the ocean, they get, I mean, get through the sea, the Sea of Galilee. They get to the other side, they get to an area called the Gennesaret or the Gadarenes. You've heard about this, the Gadarene demoniac. You remember? And Jesus and the disciples get out of the boat on the other side. They're just going, wow, what manner of man is this? And all of a sudden, a man that is full of demons, his name was called Legion, which means he had a thousand demons. 
And he comes, and he, he, he for, uh, probably for the first time, you, you have this demon-possessed man declaring that Jesus is the Son of God. And um, Jesus is going to cast these demons out of this man is what he's going to do. And this demon has a conversation with him and says, look, just don't cast this into the pit. You can cast this into the pig. I'd rather, rather be in a pig than a pit, unless the pig's in the pit. That's called barbecue. No, <laughs> that was bad. But <laughs> he casts these demons into the pigs and they jump off a cliff. Remember that? And this guy is set free. I mean, just completely set free. And the herdsmen, fled, the Bible says, and told it in the city and in the country. Now, get this for a moment. These people are scared to death of this guy. He's demon-possessed. He, he has unreal strength, unreal strength. They would tie him up with chains, tie him to the tombstones. He lived in a graveyard. That's what he did. And they'd tie him to these tombstones. This guy was so possessed by demons that he would literally bust the chains open. And he screamed all night long. And nobody's going over there because they're scared. Jesus delivers this man from demon possession. The herdsmen fled and told the city and, and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw a demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And if you go on and read the rest of it, it says their fear made them run from Jesus. Here's what they said. Just get out of here and leave us alone. People still do that in our world. still do. You know, I'm convinced of, we're more afraid of the holiness of God than we are the insanity of men. You see, it's important for us to recognize these things, guys. There's this, there's this fear of that we need in our life. There's a deep sense of respect for God. Folks, he's God. And so you understand in this passage of Scripture that before Jesus frees us from negative fears, he brings the right kind of fear into our life. The fear that he frees us from fear by the fear that he brings into our life. But then second of all, he frees us from fear by the fears that he now breaks in us. Because what he does, he now, because we have God in the right place, we have the right perspective of God in our life. All of a sudden now, a correct understanding of God began to confront the negative fears that are in our life. And here's what he does. First of all, he breaks our fear by bringing us peace. He breaks our fear by bringing us peace. In Mark chapter 5, again, you read the story about this uh, a man who comes to Jesus and he's asking for his daughter to be healed because she was sick. And, and so he went with him according to verse 24. And the Bible says a crowd followed him. And 
thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for her 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better than, but rather grew worse. And she had heard, she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, if, if I t even touch his garments, I will be made well. Now get this, this is cool. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in, felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Now get this, who's not touching Jesus? But I love this passage. Verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him. Is that cool? That power had gone out from him. And by the way, all real power comes out from him. immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Now, I can imagine the disciples going, what do you mean who everybody's trying to touch your garments? And Jesus says, no. Most of the people who are trying to reach out and touch me are not people of faith. But when faith touched the garments of Jesus, power left him. And when the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth, I think she thought, I did something wrong. She told him the truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Then there's another one. He breaks our fear by bringing us peace. He breaks our fear by giving us hope. While this is going on, the reports come to Jairus that he doesn't need to bring Jesus anymore because his daughter is dead. Jesus overhearing them, what the scripture says, overhearing the conversation, the Bible says that... Um, um, the Bible says that uh, you don't need to trouble the teacher anymore, verse 35, but overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw and Jesus saw a, com a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went into where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, uh, a little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age and they were immediately overcome with amazement 
and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. Hmm. So what are the things that produce hopelessness in your life? And here's the cool thing. When we really get this fear that God brings into our life right, we have a clear understanding that the God who is all-powerful is also the God that breaks our fears. And three things we know, we all know this. We know that there will be death, right? Anybody think, not me, I will never die, okay? I tell people all the time, statistics are very, very consistent. One out of one is not going to get out of your life, not physically speaking, okay? We're all going to die, okay? And, And when death comes, there seems to be some sense of delay because... While the Bible says that we're not really dead, we're alive in Christ, there is separation. We know there'll be death. We'll know there's delay. But we know this. We know there will be a resurrection. You say, how do you know that? There was one. Jesus said to Mary and Martha at the death of their brother, said to him, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And he who believes in me never really die. And then he closed with these words. Do you really believe this? What are you afraid of today? Because everybody has it. Do you have a healthy understanding of God? A healthy fear of God? Because God's going to bring some fear into your life. It's a respect. But when you put God in the right place, here's what I understand, and I believe this with all my heart. When you let God be God in your life, you now have in your heart the mechanism that's necessary to confront any fear that you have. Some of you, are not doing God's will right now because you are afraid. The most repeated command in the Bible, you know what it is? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Here's the deal. Build your life on a rock. You know why some of us are afraid? Because we keep building our lives on sand. And when the adversity comes, it just washes away. But remember, the wise man built his house on the rock. This rock question to you today is what are you building your hope on? What are you thinking is going to bring you peace? Jesus says, peace I give unto you. 
not the peace of the world, because that can be taken away. Some of you are living in fear right this moment. You're fearful for your kids. You're fearful of your job. You're fearful of faith. Some of you are scared to death to trust Jesus. If you let him bring the right perspective of fear, you'll have peace. And if you put him in the right place, he'll be the mechanism that dissipates the fears in your life. And he did it on a cross. Conquered the greatest enemy you have, death. He paid for your sin. And he says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. And here's the cool thing you don't walk out of here today without some concept of fear come out of here with a deep respect for a loving God who has the capacity to conquer any and every challenge 